How did torture become central to the U.S. response to the, to the 2001 attacks on New York and Washington? What are the legacies of the U.S. torture program? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute's interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moin Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with the leading torture scholar, Lisa Hajar. Lisa Hajar is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her work focuses mainly on issues relating to law and conflict. Her books include Torture, a Sociology of Violence and Human Rights. Her latest publication, The War in Court, the inside story of the fight against U.S. torture and the war on terror, will be published by the University of California Press. She's a founding co-editor of Jadalia and a member of the editorial committee of Middle East Report. I should add that Lisa Hajar will be speaking alongside Sinan Antoun, Deepa Kumar, Daryl Lee, and Samir Abboud this coming Thursday at a webinar organized by Security and Context on the subject of legacies and aftermaths of the US war on terror. Further information can be found on the Jadalia homepage. Professor Lisa Hajar, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections. Thank you, Moeen. I'm surprised you didn't invite me earlier. <laughs> well, better <laughs> late than never. Episode. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Okay, it's, it's great to, to have you on the show. Um, I'll jump right into it. Um, the United States has been heavily involved in torture for decades, whether during the war in Vietnam, the activities of the Central Intelligence Agency around the globe, or US training and assistance to some of the world's most brutal regimes. Why does 9-11 nevertheless, in your view, qualify as a watershed moment when we talk about torture? Well, that's a great question. So I think it is very important as you did to, you know, take note of the fact that torture is nothing new for the United States, um, as you know, in, in instances that you described. But the what really distinguishes uh, the torture in the context of the war on terror from earlier episodes was the fact that the Bush administration, which inaugurated this post 9-11 torture program, actually legalized torture and, and made it, you know, not just an element of war fighting policy, but the strategic cornerstone of the war on terror for the first six years. So, for example, if we think about, you know, the military and the CIA have different kinds of experiences with torture and, and ones that, you know, have a very unusual sort of coming together in the context of the war on terror. So, you know, um, one of the periods, just to make note of a historical element, was really a turning point, a real moment of reckoning for the history of modern torture was um, the Korean War, in which case uh, U.S. soldiers who were captured either by North Korea or China, you know, and then were uh, interrogated under brutal uh, torture techniques, and an astounding number of soldiers who were prisoners of war ended up being broken extremely quickly. And so after um, the end of the Korean War, two things happened. The military basically devised a program called the Survival Evasion um, 
Sierra, survival, evasion, resistance, escape program in which <clears throat> U.S. soldiers were trained in torture techniques, particularly those that were common uh, in, by some of our enemies. Um, in the case that these soldiers would ever be captured, um, you know, so that they, by having been ex experienced things like waterboarding or solitary confinement and other techniques, that they would be better prepared to withstand the torture. Um, and so the Sear School sort of was an anti-torture program that was developed to sort of, you know, embolden or protect U.S. soldiers. But the CIA took a completely different lesson from the experiences in the Korean War, and they started- They that saw that it worked. They saw that it worked and they wanted to figure out how, I mean, they saw that it worked in breaking people, you know, that's what it, where it worked. Um, and, and because of course people can be broken, you know, the question is the relationship between torture and truth, you know, that's a somewhat separate story. But so that was, the, you know, when the CIA embarked in the early 1950s on its program called MK Ultra, um, that was the name of the program. And it was all about um, developing techniques to manipulate the mind. So it was like this kind of mind science and all different techniques were initiated. And then in the 1960s, you know, in the context of the Vietnam War, the CIA was very involved, as were some special US forces in a so-called counterinsurgency program against Viet Cong, in which some of these techniques, these torture techniques were then um, adapted and propagated among the South Vietnamese uh, police who were sort of the people doing a lot of the torturous interrogations. Um, the CIA sort of went out of the torture business in the 1990s as a result of um, revelations about this past history of torture, at, you know, and, and, and its propagation among right-wing allied regimes in, in other countries. Particularly but was, Latin America, I think. Particularly Latin America, exactly, you know, through, through police training programs and others. But so after 9-11, what you know, becomes crucial, three things I think that really go to the question that you asked me about what is significant or distinctive about torture after 9-11. So in the immediate days after 9-11, um, President George W. Bush decided to make the CIA the tip of the spear in um, pursuing uh, those terrorists or terror suspects that were um, you know, accused or you know, wanted for questioning about uh, the 9-11 attacks and other terror networks. And then in sometime in the fall, and so one of the reasons why the CIA was so attractive to um, the, the leaders of the executive branch was the fact that the CIA could can operate in complete secrecy. I mean, everything about the CIA is classified and secret. Off the books. You know, yeah. so and it was like, you know, but then another thing in the fall, people both in the Pentagon and in the CIA started thinking about. Um, that, you know, looking at that SEER program, which was like the anti, you know, torture training to help U.S. soldiers withstand torture. And so the idea to re-engineer the SEER techniques um, became the kind of tech, technical, technique-based way in which um, the U.S. torture program, particularly in the hands of the CIA. So it's almost like they reversed engineered them in order to deploy them after 9-11. Well, that's exactly what they referred to it. They referred to it as the reverse engineering of the SEER techniques. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know, in this, so if we're thinking like military interrogation and CIA interrogations were somewhat separate. I mean, the CIA was, you know, going after people assumed to be so-called high value terror suspects. And so when the first 
supposed high value suspect was captured in March of 2002 is Guerre is Abu Zubaydah. He was captured in Pakistan and the CIA assumed that he had all kinds of information, which just to, you know, spoiler alert, the CIA was then and always is wrong, uh, complete and utter intelligence failure. But they believe this guy had all this information. And so they spirited him off to a secret facility or a black site in Thailand and then started, you know, once the CIA sort of really takes over the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah, they brought in two um, contractor psychologists, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, whose you know, only claim to fame for this kind of a role was the fact that they had been Air Force trainers of soldiers in the SEER technique. So they were the ones who really started thinking about which specific techniques could be re-engineered and used on Abu Zubaydah. So they start torturing this guy using these techniques. And then by July of 2002, the CIA starts getting worried that maybe in the future they could, you know, individuals who are doing these things, which, you know, clearly, obviously, you know, are illegal, um, you know, that they would be face future prosecution. So the absolute one of the critical moments is when um, government lawyers in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel and specifically John, John Yu. Yu, John Yu, exactly, who was in a very tight circle of radical right wing lawyers around Dick Cheney, who really were, you know, all on, all on board for taking the- And sorry, these off. were operating under Ashcroft at the time? Yes, but, you know, Ashcroft, you know, how the eagle soars. I mean, but the Office of Legal Counsel is its own entity within the Justice Department. So the Office of Legal Counsel, they all, it's often referred to as the government's lawyer. This is the office that's supposed to tell the government what is and isn't legal in terms of policies and practices. But John Yu, you know, with the encouragement of Cheney and Cheney's um, consigliere, um, David Addington, you know, basically wanted to assuage CIA anxieties that they would not in the future be prosecuted. And so the way in which that was done was um, through the production of two memos, both of which were dated August 1, 2002. So these, the these are the so-called torture memos. Right, but they were all classified. So the public didn't know any of this, but in one memo, um, you who authored the memo, uh, basically like looks to the Israeli example because Israel had you know, distinguished itself as the first state to legalize torture in 1987 through a reinterpretation of laws. And then the argument that national security necessity justifies and therefore legitimizes you know, coercive interrogation techniques. Right. So John Yu adapts some of those arguments also seasons them with certain U.S. arguments to basically say that unless the interrogator's intent is to torture them, as opposed to an intent to get information out of them, so torture being the means rather than the end, right. that therefore then they would be, they wouldn't fall um, afoul of the U.S. federal law that criminalizes. So torture. unless it was gratuitous infliction of cruelty, it was legal. Well, that's the way that John Yu starts interpreting these things. And just to say the second memo was a legal endorsement of the techniques that were already being used on Abu Zubaydah. But it was basically, um, it was this argument that 
you know, torture is bad, but the things the U.S. government is doing don't constitute torture as we have redefined the law or culpability for torture. So yeah. that, you know, that, that, that memo was written specifically for the CIA, which is a civilian agency and therefore is not subject to the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions. But the White House passed it along to the Pentagon and then um, Donald, Secretary, then Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld and the General Counsel for the Pentagon on William uh, Hayes, um, yeah, William Hayes, uh, basically then used that argument to push back against, uh, to, to basically provide um, military interrogators with the same prerogatives to torture as the CIA had already gotten. And then you get some pushback from the, um, you know, the JAGs, the Judge Advocate Generals or military this lawyers. This is within the Pentagon we're talking within about. Within the Pentagon, exactly. But they were overridden. And so, you know, by March of 2003, Rumsfeld has signed off on very similar torture techniques that could be utilized by the military, particularly at Guantanamo. So that's a sort of how um, you know torture gets legalized and and expanded to different institutions. The one point I would just say about why, like why did this happen, and that's really much more of a political question. So Dick Cheney, who was vice president, had you know um, you know he's an extreme. Uh, you know, sort of neo-sovereigntist, extreme right winger. And he had very much resented many of the checks and balances that had been instituted against the executive branch in the wake of Watergate and the Cointel Pro spy operations and, you know, the water. Uh, which is, the, which the, is the period when he got his start in politics during the exactly. mid 70s. Yeah. Exactly. And one of the things, and then, you know, when it came to the Reagan administration and the Iran Contra scandal, he very much opposed the majority decision that the Reagan administration had, had really violated the law. So one of Cheney's ongoing desires was to expand the prerogatives of the president and expand the powers, the uncheckable powers of the executive branch by cutting out uh, congressional oversight and judicial uh, intervention. And so, and, and we would call this, um, you know, the kind of political position, the unitary executive thesis. So it's the idea that the president should be unfettered by law, any law, international laws or even federal laws, if he's what he's the policies he's making the practices he's authorizing are intended to um keep, you know protect national so security to paraphrase nixon if the executive does it it's legal exactly and so that's exactly what you know cheney was pushing and we see that um so you know just i mean to flag something that i can expand on later but the idea is that this notion of an unfettered executive it's something that has not gone away. Like that is a lasting legacy of, you know, sort of less supervised, less accountable government power has gone from administration to administration since, you know, the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So, so that's, that's what was playing out in Washington. Now let's um, move to what was happening around the world and especially in, in, in the two um, countries that the U.S. occupied, Afghanistan and, and then Iraq. Now, um, counterinsurgency strategies um, often emphasize or are said to often emphasize the proverbial battle for the hearts and minds of hostile populations. 
But against this background, how did torture, let's call it the electrification of people and prisoners rather than towns and villages, how did that become central to the war on terror? I mean, many of us remember the horrific images that emerged out of the Abu Ghraib uh, prison in Iraq. But beyond lighting prisoners up like Christmas trees, rape and murder, what were the main features of, of the US torture program? Okay, that's, I mean, let me, um, what I'm going to tell you is, you know, sort of to think about how the, these events unfolded over a period of months and years. So one thing that's, you know, I mean, especially now that we are just, have just passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the start of the war on terror, was the idea that um, the, you know, the, the, that the, the war began as a war for information, right? The 9-11 attacks were, you know, as it was understood that those things like were, you know, unanticipated. It was an unanticipated horrific event and it signaled the fact that, you know, the US intelligence uh, agencies did not, were not accurately and adequately um, on top of things to have anticipated it or prevented it or whatever. And so they really didn't even know who was involved or who was behind the 9-11 attacks. So the war on terror starts as a war for information. And the way you get information from people is by capturing them alive and interrogating them. But because of the utter intelligence failure, the United States, when they, you know, the war, you know, begins, you know, the bomb campaign begins in October of 2001 and then boots on the ground by early November and that's when they just start rounding up people like they didn't know who was who they did they literally didn't know who they were looking for so anybody who was sold for bounty to U.S. forces or captured by the Northern Alliance, which the United States um, had allied with after you know the start of the war in Afghanistan, you know anybody could end up in first Kandahar, that was the original detention interrogation facility that the U.S. used, and then shortly thereafter in Bagram. So that's one thing you're just rounding up people. It's like it would be the similarity of um, racial profiling in a sort, like where people are just rounded up in order to see whether or not they're guilty. But then the problem becomes that because U.S. interrogators didn't speak the languages, know who was who, know anything about Afghanistan or know anything about, you know, Al-Qaeda or other um, terrorist organizations, coupled with the decision that Bush took in on February 7th, 2002, to declare that the Geneva Conventions don't apply. It really was the way in which for military interrogators, the, the gloves were um, taken wow. off. And then there was so much pressure from Washington to produce information, like a desperation, you know, like everybody who passed through uh, Bagram and was being brutally interrogated by soldiers who were responding to desperate and, you know, urgent demands from Washington for intelligence. You know, everybody was like, where's Osama bin Laden? Where's Osama bin Laden? I mean, that's, you know, was the question. So it was just, you know, it was a horrific confluence of, you know, misdeeds and, and lack of information. And then when, and I know you're going to ask me next about Guantanamo, but it was the decision was taken to turn Guantanamo, the, the naval base on the south side of Cuba, um, 
which had been used as a detention facility for Haitians in the 1990s to re-up you know, re that detention facility and move people out of the hot war zone into another place where they could be held for long-term interrogation and detention. And so basically in Bagram, every single non-Afghan who was got into US custody by for sale, roundups, passed over by the Pakistani security force, et cetera. Every non-Afghan was shipped to Guantanamo on the assumption that if you're not an Afghan, what are you doing in Afghanistan? You must yeah. be a terrorist. And then plus they sent plenty of Afghans along as well. But that was, you know, sort of the, because they literally didn't know who they had. They didn't know who they were looking for. Um, they couldn't, you know, there were, you know, it was an unprofessional interrogation uh, system that was instituted coupled with the you know declaration that there no laws apply and that these people that what they were referred to were pucks person under custody which basically was another way of dehumanizing people to kind of grease the skids for all the violence and deprivations that followed so um that's that's Afghanistan, um, mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned uh, Guantanamo, um, the U.S. prison camp in Cuba, and it emerged as a microcosm of the U.S. torture program, bringing together various aspects such as um, renditions, torture, military tribunals, um, the exposure of these practices and the campaign against them. You visited Guantanamo, in fact, um, no less than 14 times, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Right. And, yes. and what are your main takeaways from from what you saw and were permitted to see um, in Guantanamo during your many visits? Okay, so you know because like torture is my thing. I was you know really following along from the very beginning, realizing that the U.S. was you know sort of almost anticipating that the U.S. would develop a torture program based on things that were happening and statements that officials. Uh, were making and then ultimately what what really captures my interest was the fight against some of these prisoner policies that really begins with the late great Michael Ratner, who was then the president of the center or the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, um, who had actually fought the US government over the detention of Haitians uh, in, um, in Guantanamo in the 1990s and won. You know, and so when he realized that Guantanamo was gonna be a site and not just a site to be used for prisoners, but that anybody held there would be held incommunicado, so Ratner, uh, Joe Margulis, Clive Stafford Smith, the Center for Constitutional Rights and others start this fight um, against, you know, sort of at first it was just incommunicado in detention in a in a place like Guantanamo. But ultimately, I'm sorry so, to so, interrupt, but, but by that you mean that we weren't even supposed to know who was being held there? Absolutely. Those names were a secret. The no. names of detainees were a secret. A few names of uh, people who were the citizens of allied countries got out as like diplomatic courtesy. So in fact, when um, Ratner, Margulis, and Clive Stafford Smith um, sue President Bush in the first case with Sul v. Bush, they were representing those few Brits and one Australian whose identities were known among the many others whose identities were classified secrets. But so the point that I wanted to get to is that it's, you know, it really only 
begins, you know, everything was still classified and secret, et cetera. But as you had mentioned before, the Abu Ghraib scandal, because I just need to like link that back in with the rock. I mean, it's all, <laughs> this will get me back to Guantanamo in a moment, but the, you know, it was the, the you know, the, the decision of the neocons to spread the war on terror to Iraq on fabricated, um, you know, justifications okay. like that, you know, Iraq still had a weapons of mass destruction program, but more, uh, you know, bizarrely that Saddam Hussein had been in alliance with um, Osama yeah. bin Laden and therefore Iraq bore some responsibility for 9-11. But so the neocons bought their own nonsensical rhetoric that this would be a cakewalk. They could go in and finally finish off Saddam Hussein and they'd be greeted as liberators. And it just didn't really go that way. It went terribly, terribly badly. And so just like in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the US just started rounding up people and you know, and there was like transfers between interrogators from Afghanistan who brought their torture skills to Iraq, et cetera. And that's what leads to um, the debacle that was photographed by uh, military police themselves about the torture of some Iraqi prisoners in the Abu Ghraib prison. But it's when those photos become public in April of 2004. It's like, that's what blows the lid off all the secrets. Like, you know, you, the United States does torture people, you know, contrary to all the statements to the contrary by various Probably officials. so, one male, you could almost add. Right, and so then it was, you know, then short, the pressure that the Abu Ghraib scandal put on the Bush administration forced the executive branch to start releasing a few memos and policy documents because Congress was finally like roused from its sleepy slumber to ask what was happening in interrogation of detention facilities. And that's when those torture memos, including the infamous August 1 memo authored by John Yu come out. And then at the end of, that was in like sort of May and early June of 2004 on the heels of the Abu Ghraib scandal, and then at the end of June, it was the first of not very many victories, you know, by the good lawyers, by the lawyers who were fighting the government, when, you know, CCR et al. won in the Supreme Court the case of Rasul v. Bush. So Rasul v. Bush essentially opens up Guantanamo to lawyers, like lawyers could then sign up and hundreds, 600 lawyers from all walks of the profession volunteered to serve as habeas counsels for Guantanamo detainees. So and I think journalists were given access as well. Journalists were yeah. allowed, I mean, like Carol Rosenberg is, you know, really a national treasure. She was there when the first prisoners were airlifted. She's been there a lot. But there wasn't much going on in, um, you know, I mean, you know, they were allowed to, uh, they'd been allowed to see the prisoners, but there wasn't much that the government wanted the media to report on in Guantanamo. But after, um, when the first lawyers begin going down to Guantanamo and meeting with these clients that they have volunteered to represent, that's when the narrative starts changing. So the point being, then my research, you know, sort of following toward, I start doing research on the lawyers who were going to Guantanamo, et cetera. And Guantanamo seemed like a closed place. And so it was a very, you know, as a scholar and, you know, somebody who writes journalistically, it was very frustrating that I couldn't see for myself. Like I had to always 
base whatever I was learning on interviews with people who went to Guantanamo, who particularly um, those lawyers, as well as military lawyers, the first batch of military lawyers who were assigned to represent the first detainees who were slotted for prosecution in the presidentially created military commissions. So, but it wasn't until 2010 um, that I, and when, you know, uh, in 2010, of course, is the Obama administration, you know, so the Obama administration, while Obama technically ended the torture program officially in January of 2009, he decided to keep Guantanamo open or, or he was unable to, you know, close it. And he also decided to use the military commissions. And the first person that was prosecuted under uh, Obama, the putative constitutional law professor, rights, you know, respecting liberal was Omar Khadr, a Canadian citizen who'd been captured in Afghanistan in July of 2002 when he was 15 years old and transported to Guantanamo in October of 2002, shortly after he turned 16. So the first, you know, person to be prosecuted under Obama was this, you know, child, you know, so-called child soldier. And so I was watching all of, it was reading, you know, so there were journalists down there at the trial and it was all about, you know, what, you know, what statements that Omar Khadr made to interrogators would be allowed to be used because of the fact that the defense teams were, you know, defense lawyers were arguing that he'd been tortured. And it was so frustrating for me, you know, this is like April, May of 2010, you know, to have to, the, the only way I could access what I wanted to write about and study and understand was indirectly. Was, yeah. was indirectly. And so then, um, you know, in June, I was, I was, I met with a, um, a psychologist named Kate Porterfield in New York. And she was actually had been working with Omar Khadr because she, her specialties include victims of torture and child survivors of war, of which Omar Khadr was both. And she was scheduled to go back to Guantanamo when the hearings resumed, you know, the following month. And, you know, so we were having a conversation. I was like, oh, I wish I could go. Or she, she looked at me and said, I wish you could be there. And I was like, I wish I could be there too. And then she said, well, you could go if you went as a journalist. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. I write journalistically. And so I will give the Pentagon credit for one thing. They have no litmus test for journalists. And so like I started going, um, and which isn't to say, I, I mean, I do write journalistically, but the, you know, I started going to Guantanamo. I, I, I went down for all of the hearings in the Omar Khadr case. And then in December 2013, I started going and went another, um, you know, 11 times, mostly for hearings that have been ongoing in the 9-11 case. Mm -hmm. And that's five people who were who spent years in CIA custody being brutally tortured, whom the government is now trying to prosecute in the military commission. This is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and, and four others. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you know, they were arraigned under Obama in 2012, it's 2021, they are nowhere near ending the pretrial phase of that case because of the fact that they were tortured by the CIA. That the secret, that the, 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 the details of their torture continue to be uh, highly classified secrets and the government wants to, um, this is a capital case, the government is seeking the death penalty. And so what, you know, I'm really bad at math, 2012 to 2021, it's like nine, nine years of pretrial hearings, you but, know, but basically illustrate saying... no justice with torture. But, but you're saying they were only charged in 2012. 
that was they were actually charged for the second time. The Bush administration charged them in 2008. That was going to be like the way that Bush was going to go out, you know, prosecuting the alleged mastermind of 9-11, getting them found guilty and executing them. But the case fell apart in December of 2008 when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the, the main um, of the five de defendants, you know, sort of said that, that he would be willing to um, plead guilty immediately on the condition that he go directly to execution. And then some of the others also, uh, you know, said, yeah, we want to do that too. And, but, you know, <laughs> the law <laughs> governing the military commissions doesn't allow people to plead into a death sentence. So okay. the case fell apart. And then, you know, Obama wanted to try them in New York, but then that idea fell apart. And then they were re recharged in 2012. So the case now is referred to as KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's initials, two. Denoting that this is the second bite at the military commission, and, and we're still in the pretrial phase. Still in the pretrial phase. It just had hearings, um, you know, over the 20th anniversary period. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't able to go. I wanted to go, you know, because I wanted to be at one time because I've been following this case and it had been suspended for 18 months because of COVID, and I wanted to be at Guantanamo for the 20th anniversary of 9/11, but. Unfortunately, and I, I go reporting for Middle East Report. There were, as as my the very nice you know public affairs people in the Pentagon would say, there's too many major media that want to go, so there was no space for me, so I couldn't go. So I'll go back when the major media lose their interest in the arcane motions battles that have defined this case. Well, you've you've referred several times to the twentieth um, uh, commemoration of uh, of nine eleven. And looking back, um, what are the main legacies of two decades of the U.S. torture program? Is it appropriate or too early to speak of it in the past tense? Um, it's definitely not too early to speak for it. And I can give you several examples that illustrate that point. So while... Obama, you know, by signing an executive order on his second day in office, he signed three. One was close Guantanamo, that didn't work out so well. Another was suspend the military commissions, which were then brought back online. But the third one was to take the CIA out of the, you know, interrogation and detention business, which for all intents and purposes, any formally sort of ending uh, torture. But Here's why the, the legacies are, you know, the, the, we can't say we're after torture for several reasons. One, there was absolutely, torture is a crime. And it's not just a regular run of the mill crime. It is a crime whose neighbors are war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity. It's one of the gross crimes under international law. But it, there was never any accountability for any of the you know, intellectual authors or perpetrators of US torture. So that was that gonna be my next question is, has, has there been any reckoning? No. So I mean, this is one example that there's been, you know, so by not holding anybody accountable for the crime of torture and Obama, you know, went further and said, we everybody who was involved in the torture program was acting in good faith. And the good faith was because they basically, you know, govern, you know, government lawyers had legalized what they were doing at that time period. So even if the policy changes, the lack of accountability is, you know, a major you know, problem. I mean, so it, not just a problem that the people responsible for torture weren't prosecuted and some of them, you know, were promoted to higher things, but the fact that that th those that sequence of events has actually made it very difficult, if not impossible for like 
average Americans or even the US legal system to accurately understand what is torture and what is wrong with torture. I mean, we haven't even, we don't even have that story. But a second, um, the other significant example is the fact that although the torture program ended in terms of you know the use of those techniques you know in the interrogation of detainees um the fact that the cia all everything about it remains classified and so there is this important and devastating chapter of u.s history which was the focus of a um the senate select committee on intelligence did a report by started out bipartisan you know the report was you know concluded in 2012 harshly critical of the cia for saying that the interrogation techniques they were authorized to use didn't work it endangered u.s security etc but because it was the senate report was so critical of the cia program you know all the CIA defenders and, and torture enthusiasts, you know, sort of rallied against it. And the what's happened is that all the public has ever seen is a heavily redacted executive summary of the SSCI report. But that 6,300 page report, which is one, not the only one, but one authoritative accounting of the CIA's torture program is locked away. And it's, you know, and so that that inability to even know what our government did and why are the details that is another enduring legacy. You, you keep talking about the CIA, but earlier you, you made a made the point that um, what changed after 9-11 was that both the CIA and the regular military were given legal authorization. Mm -hmm. um, to engage in these practices. Uh, right. Well, so the, the critical actor in that, and thank you very much for reminding me, one of the critical actors in dragging the military back out of the torture program was Republican Arizona Senator John McCain, who himself had been a prisoner of war and had been brutally tortured when he was captured in um, North Vietnam for five years, and who's always been a very staunch anti-torture person, not so much because of any sympathy for those, you know, America's enemies, but rather on the grounds that, you know, torture doesn't work, that, you know, authorizing soldiers to utilize torture degrades the military, and it damages US, you know, national interests. So McCain, you know, particularly, you know, soldiers who were involved or aware of, you know, military interrogational abuses started contacting McCain. And there were, of course, NGOs, you know, operating on this level too. And McCain basically fought his own party and, you know, the Bush administration by authoring a, um, an amendment to the defense spending bill of 2005. It is called the McCain Amendment. And it basically, its original aim was to re-prohibit any use of violent um, psychological or physical tactics by US interrogators, by all of them. Cheney loses his shit. You know, it's like it's one thing for the military to be, you know, McCain to be a terrorist, you know, a sympathizing, whatever, but like leave the CIA alone. And so there was a battle. McCain battled it out with the White House. Um, in the fall of 2005, and finally McCain was worn down or broken, let's say like the White House broke him, and so he agreed to add a CIA exception to the prohibition. So the main McCain amendment essentially takes the military back out of the formally legal policy position of torture, but it carved out that CIA exception. I see. So um, we're talking again about what what was happening in um, in Washington, and 
looking more broadly within the U.S., has the U.S. torture program that took place in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and elsewhere abroad, has it had an influence domestically within the United States? I mean, yeah, many influences. And, and, you know, one of the things when I first started, you know, focusing on torture in the context of the war on terror was many of my friends, dear friends and colleagues who work on, you know, prison abuse and the horrific conditions in U.S. prisons, you know, were, and especially after the Abu Ghraib scandal came out, were frustrated that there was, you know, not very many, but some people who were like loudly opposing torture of foreigners abroad that, you know, the idea that it wasn't really, um, you know, that it was ignoring or mis or, or understating the significance of the fact that many of the particularly long-term isolation and sleep deprivation that are, you know, techniques that are found in U.S. prisons, that that was getting, you know, like short prolonged trip. solitary confinement, basically. And prolonged solitary confinement and all kinds of other, you know, maybe not waterboarding, et cetera. But so, but the thing is that, you know, during, in the context of, while the torture program, both military and civilian and uh, CIA was operating, I mean, some of the people who were brought in to be interrogators were, you know, police you know, police officers, you know, who in, who use torture in their domestic thing. And particularly, you know, Chicago had a notorious torture problem. Um, and so some of the infamous uh, police uh, torturers were actually put on reserve duty, brought down to Guantanamo. One of them is a guy named Richard Zuli, who led the brutal interrogation of uh, a Mauritanian named Mohamedou Salahi. And he basically was bringing in all kinds of abusive techniques that he had, you know, sort of perfected on poor people, people of color in the Chicago area, in order to force them to confess falsely often to things. And so that he was, you know, sort of he was let loose on Salahi. And that's, you know, so part of this, you know, I mean, Zuli has never been held accountable. No one has been held accountable. So in some ways, that's part of this, you know, why we can't say we've turned the page on, on this chapter. Yeah, so just one, one last point on this. I mean, you, when we talked about accountability, you spoke about those who were um, directly involved in terms of government officials writing torture memos, um, uh, perpetrators and so on. But where do people like uh, James Mitchell um, uh, fall into this, who were, my understanding is they were kind of hired as torture consultants. Well, no, um, they were actually the torturers. So um, J Mitchell and Jessen, but mostly Mitchell, actually testified in the 9-11 case, you know, mm -hmm. because the defense lawyers uh, called them, Mitchell took, you know, Mitchell's been the much more um, talkative of the two of them ever, you know, he's the one who published an autobiography. He was very proud of his work from the interview. Proud, in fact, so when he was on the stand in um, January of 2020, I was there, uh, you know, it, he was basically saying that, you know, he was asked by his government to help fight terrorists who had killed 3,000 people. And so then, he, you know, he utilized his, you know, seer uh, skills. But so he's never been prosecuted. However, because he and Mitchell, I mean, he and Jessen, excuse me, were contractors and not CIA employees, they're the two that have kind of been put out to, I mean, if there have been legal cases, you know, that have, you know, there have been civil suits, for example, against 
uh, Mitchell and Jessen, you know, and, and then the government has stepped in and paid, like they lost, and and the government stepped in and paid the the uh, money that was the damages awarded to plaintiffs. But now there's a new case, um, you know, that that um, U.S. and and European lawyers are pursuing a case in the European Court of Human Rights for the torture of Abu Zubaydah, um, and they want Mitchell and Jessen to be subpoenaed to testify for the, e, the European Court of Human Rights. The, go, the government, and that was both the Trump administration and now the Biden administration are opposing you know, that idea. And so one of the original lawyers, Joe Margulis, who's also Abu Zubayt, one of Abu Zubaydah's lawyers, there's now a Supreme Court petition to uh, you know, get the Supreme Court to find against the government and allow Mitchell and Jessen to be called to testify in the European Court of Human Rights. Because frankly, the European, Europe, the European context, there hasn't been any accountability, but Europe is a more fertile ground for future accountability for the crime. And are, are those the only cases you're aware of where, where there are active attempts to seek um, accountability for this whole uh, affair? There have been a number of cases, um, you know, not many, but there were cases in Germany, that, you know, cases in Spain, um, efforts to get Rumsfeld when he was in France, et cetera. But none of them really moved very far. These are like, you know, universal jurisdiction cases where right. national prosecutors were seeking to prosecute people associated with the U.S. torture program in foreign courts under the doctrine of universal right. jurisdiction. But the, the place where there has been some accountability has been the European Court of Human Rights. And so the cases have been not about criminal accountability, but rather the countries that allowed um, the CIA to operate black sites on its territory, Poland, Romania, Lithuania. Um, and then there was also Macedonia was involved in, in a kidnapping case of, of a German citizen. So the European Court of Human Rights has, has had, you know, has ruled on behalf of some of the former CIA detainees. Mm -hmm. And now there's a, an action, I don't know much about it, but in the American, um, you know, the American Court of Justice, which deals with the Americas. Right. Uh, Lisa Hajar, it's been anything but torture. Thank you very much uh, for sharing your uh, experiences and insights with Connections. Thank you. And can also a special one, thank, please. Okay, I just say one thing, like many of these yeah. little nuggets of facts are part of the book that will hopefully be out in 2022. We we're, mentioned we're, it, but it's We're very much uh, looking forward to it. And also just to remind again that you and others will be speaking um, at the webinar this Thursday, um, organized by Security and Context on legacies and aftermaths of, uh, of the war on terror. And also special thanks to uh, Arish Faisal uh, for her uh, technical support. Thank you very much. Thank you.